This is the Talk Magazine podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of Diaspora Dialogues. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentorship programs, professional development seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. In this episode, moderator and CBC Books producer Ryan B. Patrick facilitates a conversation with authors Zalika Reed-Benta and Becky Blake as they discuss their books Frying Plantain and Proof I Was Here and how setting has influenced their writing. Hi there. Good afternoon on this beautiful, beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon where you are here with us in the theater. Uh, We're delighted to have you for this third event that we have today which is an on-stage conversation with Zalika Reed-Bentham and Becky Blake. It's my delight to introduce our moderator today, who will uh, introduce the speakers and uh, take it from there. So Ryan B. Patrick is a Toronto writer, critic, and arts and culture journalist. He's a producer at CBC Books, the digital destination for all at CBC Books and CanLit programming, including Canada Reads. His work has appeared in publications and websites such as Exclaim Magazine, CBC Music, Huffington Post Canada, and Now Magazine. Please join me in welcoming Ryan and Becky and Zalika. Thanks, Helen. Um, So I'm Ryan Patrick, Ryan B. Patrick. I'm a producer at CBC Books, like she said, uh, home for all Canada's CBC's literary programming in terms of Canada Reads. And we also support the radio shows on the the next chapter with Sheila Rogers and uh, Writers Company with Eleanor Wachtel. So it's great to be here and sit down with some two emerging Canadian authors. It's obviously an exciting time when we're talking about Canadian literature. We're seeing great new perspectives, great new authors, and just great new writing. So it's fantastic to see. I will introduce our first author, Zalika Reed-Benta. She is a Toronto-based author whose debut short story collection, Frying Plantain, has been long listed for the 2019 Gilla Prize. Can we get a quick round of applause for that? So she was the June 2019 Writer-in-Residence for Open Book, and she was listed on CBC's Six Writers to Watch in 2019. In 2011, George Elliott Clark, he recommended her as a writer to watch, and her work has appeared in Time Crier and the CBC website. She received her MFA from for Fiction at Columbia University and is an alumnus for the 2017 Banff Writing Studio and was the 2019 Gardner, uh, John Gardner Fellow for Fiction at the Bread Loaf Writers Conference. Uh, she's currently working on a young adult fantasy novel, drawing inspiration on Jamaican folklore and I can spirituality. So give her a hand for her again. <laughs> Our second amazing author is Becky Blake. She is the two-time winner for the CBC Literary Prize for nonfiction in 2017 and for short fiction in 2013. Becky's stories and essays have appeared in publications across Canada. Her first novel, Proof I Was Here, was published by Wilsuck and Wing Wing in May 2019. She teaches creative writing at U of T, continuing education, and holds an MFA from the University of Guelph. She's currently working on a second novel and a memoir of essays. Let's give it up for Becky Blake. So how are we going to proceed? Each author will give a short reading, then we will proceed to a Q&A between the authors, and then we'll open the floor and have some audience questions. Thank you for coming. 
I'm just going to read a couple of pages from my short story, Lovely. Um, I'm going to read it in the from the middle. It's when uh, the protagonist, Kara, meets her current boyfriend, who is only just named as the boyfriend. I met the boyfriend at Rochelle's 18th birthday. The party started at 7, and my mother was going to pick me up at 10, even though no one else would even show up until at least 8.30. When I got to Rochelle's, her mother, Miss B, was still bustling around the kitchen, cooking what smelled like jerk chicken, and Rochelle was hanging up streamers in the basement, standing on top of the ripped leather couch to reach the ceiling. She wasn't even dressed yet, wearing gray lounge shorts and a tattered shirt with the Jamaican flags splayed across the chest. Hold the other side, nah, she said. I climbed onto the sofa and balanced myself on the frame, taping the other end of the streamer against the wall. Rochelle suddenly got irritated. Hey, are you gonna are you gonna help set up the stereo or just stare at my friend's bati all day? Damn, Shell, why you gotta be like that? I hadn't noticed there was someone else in the basement with us. The boyfriend was crouched in a corner by the entrance, bent in front of a large speaker. I glanced away as soon as I spotted him. I couldn't stare at cute boys for too long. That's just my Brampton cousin, Rochelle told me. He's a Star Wars geek. Shell! Oh. I stepped off the couch and followed Rochelle back upstairs. I like Lord of the Rings better. At 8 o'clock, another three people showed up, a guy in a do-rag and two girls in jersey dresses, one of them sporting the Lakers and the other one the Sixers. Anita, Ashani, and Jordan probably wouldn't come until my mom picked me up at 10. They always try to be the latest ones to anything. We stayed upstairs. There weren't enough people for the basement to become the place to be yet. Rochelle and the other girls skipped to her bedroom to find her something to wear, and I sat down in the living room since I wouldn't be of any help. I'd come in basics, blue jeans and a fitted camouflage shirt. I never spent more than 10 minutes deciding what to wear. Miss B had finished most of the cooking, and the dining table was crowded with aluminum trays stuffed with rice and peas, jerk chicken, potato salad, curry goat. We weren't supposed to start eating until at least another 10 people showed up, but the boyfriend crept around the kitchen and snatched a couple of fried dumplings from a pan on the stove, keeping a lookout for Miss B, who'd gone to the bathroom. He handed me a dumpling as he sat next to me on the floral living room sofa. Do-rag washed us from the armchair. Wow, you couldn't even get me any? I only got two hands, don't I? Oh, I see, he said, grinning. This is one of your moves, right? Being all chivalrous and shit. Whatever. I stared at the dumpling. Thanks. The truth is, I don't like fried dumplings. I prefer them boiled and mixed in stew with yams and chicken, a preference that everyone tells me is weird. You're wrong, you know, said the boyfriend, about Star Wars. You heard that? He grinned. Yeah, I heard that. The house started getting packed around 8.45, and there was an unspoken system to the party. Take your shoes off at the door, pack your paper plate with food, thank Miss B, and then beeline to the basement where the music was, where the dance floor was, where Rochelle was. Even downstairs, I sat on the tattered couch and watched the party ebb and flow in front of me. Rochelle danced in the center of the basement, the gold belly chain circled around her midriff glinting in the dark and hypnotizing the guys posted up against the wall. The boyfriend found me and sat next to me again, even though when he sat next to me upstairs, we just talked about movies even though for each group of girls that passed by us, one of them would ask him to dance. Look, I don't dance, I said, so if you want to try to catch a bubble or something, feel free to talk to one of those girls. Don't worry, love, he said, I don't dance either. It was a lie, a corny one, and it almost made me smile. The next day, Rochelle messaged me to tell me he'd asked for my number, and she'd given it to him. He likes you. Deal with it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I'm going to read a little part from the book that's uh, pretty close to the beginning. 
the main character in the book is having a pretty rough time. And she, in this scene, um, she has had a couple of nights on the street and she has been befriended by pickpocket. This is sort of their second day together. Manu took a battered looking apple out of his knapsack and cut it into pieces with his knife, handing me slices one by one and choosing the bruised parts for himself. We ate without talking, staring out at the endless procession of waves crashing into the shore. When the apple was finished, Manu wiped his knife clean, then used the blade to smooth flat an area of the sand. Do you know where Jaume 1 metro station is on the yellow line, he asked. Yes. Good. So this is the entrance. Manu drew two sets of stripes with the tip of his knife, then pointed from one to the other. Stairs. Escalator. Okay. And here by the ticket machines, he cut an X below the stripes, would be the best place for you to stand. He stopped and looked at me, reading back and forth across my face. I studied the drawing again, and then I understood. He wanted me to help him rob someone. My face flushed as I realized I'd been waiting for him to ask me, hoping that he would. What would I have to do? Just distract someone, talk to him, keep him busy? Would I have a disguise? No. He'll think you're a tourist, and if you do it right, he won't remember you at all. That sounded like a perfect job for me, to be there one moment and then forgotten. Manu retraced the X in the sand. The wind was flapping the sleeves of his ratty T-shirt against his thin arms. I have to send money to my family, he said, but whatever we get, I'll share it with you. I took the knife from him and drew his circle around the X. This is where you want me to wait? He nodded. Okay, I'll be there. The yellow line of the metro made stops at the beach, the cathedral, and the most expensive shopping street, so the trains were always packed with tourists. I hoped I'd remembered Manu's instructions. Espera. He'd said the word a number of times, but it was a verb that meant both to wait and to hope. In any case, I was doing both of those things, waiting for him by the ticket machine inside the Jaume 1 entrance and hoping he was going to appear. It had been at least 20 minutes, but I didn't think he'd abandon me. He'd stash my boots in his knapsack and loan me a pair of his shoes to wear instead. I looked down at my feet, winter pale and too small against the rubber frame of his dirty white flip-flops. The shoes seemed like an obvious prop, a glaring indicator that something wasn't right. To steady my nerves, I pretended to be waiting for a friend, pretended so hard I could almost picture her, another tourist who I'd greet with a hug before we smacked up the stairs in our unseasonal sandals talking loudly in English. I asked someone for the time, 10.15. Beside me on the wall, there was a map of the city, sprawling and complex. At the top, the streets were organized into a grid, but in the center, there was no pattern, just a broken plate that someone had tried to glue together. Superimposed over the city, the lines of the metro looked like a small child had drawn them with crayons, red, yellow, green, purple, and blue. I turned from the map, just in time to see Manu coming down the corridor from the tunnel. He touched the leather cuff on his left wrist. I glanced at the man to his left and did a quick assessment. He was wearing a Pac-Man t-shirt and cargo pants. He didn't look very fit. I watched him from the corner of my eye as he pushed through the turnstile. I guessed he would take the escalator instead of the stairs. Just before he passed, I turned and stepped on ahead of him, a shiver racing up my spine. I could feel the man at my back. As we approached the top, I pretended my flip-flop was caught in the moving stairs. I hopped around, causing a minor traffic jam as the man reversed as far as he could on the escalator to avoid running into me. Manu was behind him. Sorry, I said in English, turning and smiling. I was playing a clumsy tourist, a carefree girl backpacking around Europe on her parents' money. I saw him glance down the front of my shirt as I bent to adjust my shoe. 
Then I walked off down the street, the finer details of the city leaping out at me for a moment, the lacy edge of a red fan in a shop window, the sweet, smoky smell of hot chocolate and cigarettes as a cafe door opened and closed. After a block, I turned to look back. Both Manu and the escalator man were out of sight. I'd thought standing on Manu's axe might change me in some way, but I still felt almost the same. The only difference now was a new itch just beginning, the question of what else I might do, how far I might go. When I met Manu back in the courtyard, he pulled the wallet from the waistband of his jeans and handed it to me like a gift. I tore open the Velcro flap. Inside was the man's face, an old picture on a gym membership. In just one moment, his entire day had changed. Manu and I had made that happen. Manu frowned. I was taking too long. I dipped my fingers into the billfold and slid up the edges of the money. The color was orange, 50 euros. I spread the bills with my fingers. One, two, three. Each of them was crisp and new, straight out of the bank machine. Manu's jaw relaxed. You have good luck. It was funny he thought that. I wasn't a lucky person at all. Awesome, awesome. Um, can we give it up to these two authors again? <laughs> um, like I said, congrats to you making on the long list for the Gula Pluralize. That's a huge deal for a debut author. Congrats again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Becky, you're no slouch yourself. You won the CBC Literary Prizes, both in short story and in nonfiction twice. So that's something to be said. I guess we can start in terms of when you look at awards or recognition, does that kind of thing kind of validate you? Do you look, do you look for those things, particularly at this stage in your career? I'm not going to say that it's not unpleasant. <laughs> um, I don't think that I set out writing this thinking about awards or anything like that, because for a while I didn't even think Frying Plantain was going to be published. I didn't think that anyone was ever going to read it. And then it was published, and I mean, it was only published in June, which is still kind of like a short period of time. So I think I was still on the wave of, oh my God, it's published, and it's going to be like, it's in, it's in bookstores and everything. And then my agent called me and told me about the Giller. And I was sick when she told me that, but I also just couldn't believe it because I just didn't expect to be longlisted for this book or, or really any book. It wasn't really something that I was thinking about. But it's definitely been, I'm, I'm very, very happy and, and I feel very like humbled and honored to be, to be longlisted. So it's been great. <laughs> yeah. And Becky? I think as an emerging writer, you're looking for validation anywhere. You know, you get that when you get your first publication. You know, I remember my first publication, it was a one-page story. I got paid $25, maybe $10. I can't remember, but uh, it was, you know, but just like, and I remember showing someone that magazine. It was sort of like a chap book. It was like really low budget. And that person said like, that's not a real magazine. And I was just like, it is a real magazine, you know? Like, it's just like you, you sort of, that's like the beginning of, of where you start in terms of, you do need like, I guess, feedback. And we get that in all different ways. We get right. that from our, from readers at every level, starting, you know, from just sharing things in a class and then, Awards is kind of like the pinnacle of that. And it's, I think it's always unexpected, probably. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a lottery, a lot of these things. I mean, the CBC thing is crazy. There's like thousands of people 
I always picture your little story like sort of moving through like a <laughs> kind of labyrinth or something, mm -hmm. you know, there's all these different people that have to read it and check it off and then it's almost miraculous. <laughs> it feels Awesome. So before we, we delve into some questions about the books in terms of writing process and stuff like that, maybe you can both quickly talk about your book what it's about and why you wrote it for the people that haven't read both of your respective books or even for the people who have, it kind of helps to have hear from the author's words themselves in terms of what the book was about and why you wrote it. So maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. So um, Frying Planton is an interconnected short story collection. It follows a girl, Kara, from when she's about nine to when she's about 21. So different stories deal with different things. Um, and Snow Day deals with bullying and, and sort of just sexual harassment. And Lovely, which I just read, it's about like having her first boyfriend and, you know, having her first sexual experience. There's things with, uh, you know, intergenerational cycles, as I like to say, um, with the mother and the grandmother and the grandparents' relationship. And um, even though Kara's father isn't physically present in the story, his uh, legacy, I feel like, is present his negative legacy and so like there's there's stuff about that and how she deals with uh not just her relationships to to men and to boys but even just her interpersonal relationships with her friends and just how that affects her why i wrote it it's it's always really interesting when i get this question because i always feel like this collection kind of came out of me i always say that the forerunner to this collection was this story called the building blocks which i actually worked on with diaspora dialogues like in 2011 and that's when some of the characters and that's when eglinton west is the first time i actually really wrote about it appeared and then I think I tried to move on to other things, but I had a lot of uh, creative writing classes in undergrad and the, my mentors were just like, no, you have something here. So I think that you should continue with it. And, and then I kind of did. I can say now just having written it and like not really being so in it that I grew up reading a lot, but I also grew up watching a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows. I grew up with a lot of coming of age stories like Now and Then or My Girl and, and everyone was white. And if there were black characters, there were African-American characters. And so I was just like, well, you know, we have that in Toronto. We have that with uh, Jamaican descent. We have that in diaspora. So I feel like subconsciously I was always working towards writing a book that I had wanted to read growing up that I felt like I could relate to. And Becky? I was living in Barcelona, and um, the book takes place in Barcelona. And I lived in a, a kind of rough neighborhood, a very rough neighborhood, I would say, where there was a lot of crime. And there was a bench near my house where every day I would see somebody crying, a different person every day. And I was kind of, well, at first I didn't know what was going on, and then I realized that these people had often been robbed because there were a lot of thieves in the neighborhood. So then I became kind of fascinated because it was often tourists, and I started thinking about loss, the loss of a wallet, which of course is a drag, and it really messes up your day and your vacation, and it's, it's hurtful, you know, but it's also, it's also a relatively minor loss in the grand scheme of our lives, and um, I started thinking about that as a sort of a practice for going through larger, larger losses that one experiences. And so then I, I had the idea for a character who has suffered some losses in her life, but is also a thief. So she's sort of investigating loss from both sides, I guess. So you mentioned Barcelona. Obviously, your depiction of Barcelona isn't like the picturesque kind of travelogue kind of view that one might get when you think of the city. The city. 
how did you want to depict like the underside of that particular region with from a, like an outsider perspective while still respecting the culture and aren't without kind of delving into like stereotype? Living in this neighborhood was sort of, even here in Toronto, I have always been sort of a person who has had some experience in the underground, as, as you say. And in this book, it's quite literal because a lot of it takes place on, in the subway or some of it does. You know, like you said, Barcelona is often thought of as a, as a tourist destination. It's, it is a very beautiful city. But living there for three years, I was, I was much more drawn to investigate things that are happening there that are a bit more on the edge. Um, things like the squatting community. All through Europe, there's a much stronger squatting community than what we have in Canada because the laws here are different and they're just, they come down on it faster. But in Europe, there's a lot of people that choose to live in abandoned buildings, which is, you know, there's need-based squatting and then there's, there's political squatting. In my book, I wrote about the political squatting where people occupy places and, and then they try to integrate into the community so that when they're, you know, when they do run up against the police, the community will support them. And I, I actually spent some time in one of those places that was an abandoned leper colony and it had been uh, repurposed and there's like 12 families that have been living there for six years. And I went and spent some time there and, you know, they have like a school for the community and they have a garden and yeah, it's just very integrated, even though it's, it's totally illegal. They're stealing, you know, they're stealing electricity and stealing all these things. But basically, yeah, I got very fascinated by the squatting community when I was there, the graffiti and the graffiti being very political. I was there at a time when the Catalan independence, that's been going on for hundreds of years, that struggle. But uh, it, was, it was leading up to a referendum, not the big one that just happened, but a sort of precursor to that. And so there were a lot of manifestations or protests and things like that that I w went to. So it kind of took over me as opposed to like me sort of choosing. It was just the neighborhood I was in and the things I was seeing. I just wanted to try and write about those things. Yeah. Right, right. And so like uh, what I appreciated about your book, it's about kind of like relationships. It's about the quote unquote immigrant experience through the eyes of a second generation Canadian. What did you want to say about relationships? This is a young black girl. She's growing up on the west side of Toronto. It's about relationships, romantic relationships, relationships between friends, but specifically that mother-daughter dynamic. What did you want to say about that? I think that I really wanted to just explore the complexities of that. And I wanted to explore it through a particular lens, like of third culture kid of, um, of the diaspora, because it's kind of difficult to, to, to think about what I was like trying to, trying to do as I was writing it. I think that I just wanted to show that there are various ways to love because certain things that people like, just like talking about the mother-daughter relationship, sometimes I get people being like, oh my God, but Eloise was just so mean. And I'm like, she wasn't mean though. I mean, there are moments where there's like a sort of hardened exterior, but she shows her love in ways that she can. And that's like through food that's through defending her it's through it's through a certain type of ferocity so i think i wanted to explore this idea of you know ferociously protecting your child and ferociously loving your child and how that ferocity can sometimes also harm your child even if you don't mean to i think i just was really fascinated by the duality of love and what that can and what that can do to to your to your child 
Fantastic. So Becky, what I appreciated about the narrator, narrator, Nikki, the protagonist of the book, she's definitely has some issues. She's processing it, but she's also processing grief. What did you want to say about grief and the healing process through this book? When we lose something suddenly, it can trigger like existential questions. It just sort of throws us into a, an altered state where those questions about what's the point of, well, what's the point of doing everything or anything if everything just disappears? You know, what's the point of trying to make art or like leave a mark or anything, you know, if things can be taken from us super suddenly, but also our lives are going to end, you know, there isn't usually much of a, a trace while well, there eventually there is no trace, you know. But I think it can start with a small loss, but if it's sudden, it can sort of sh like throw you into this other state. And so I wanted to show a character working through some of those, those questions through art and how art can give us, give us some comfort, I guess, in mm -hmm. when we're trying to find answers to those things. And that, of course, the art will also disappear, but there's art for art's sake and art for comforting others. And I don't know. I just <laughs> wanted to look at it that way, I guess. Awesome. And Zuleika, your book approaches race and identity, but it doesn't do it in a ham-fisted or ham-forced uh, way. It's not like race, neon lights kind of thing. Like, how did you want to tackle like the subtext of race and identity and have it kind of unfold in an organic manner and not kind of beating you over the head with it? That's probably one of the things I was the most deliberate with because I am not interested in telling stories where race isn't a factor, but I am not interested in being like, race. Because I don't think that's the way that Black people, Black women, Black girls live their lives. I think it's just always a part of our experiences. It's everyday things. It's minute things. It's just, you know, going into a shopper's drug mart and being followed. And, and it's, it's, you know, as we say, dog whistle politics, it's microaggressions. And so I really wanted to convey the fact that it's just something that we deal with daily. And it's not necessarily all the time someone screaming the N-word in your face. It's just this exhausting sort of just navigation that you have to do. So when I was writing it, I was really just thinking about my experiences, my friends' experiences, and just going into places and what happens when I, when that, when I do that. And I just wanted to translate that onto the page. And Becky, you write, this is your debut novel, but you've also written a lot of nonfiction. So when you're writing fiction versus nonfiction, are you kind of using different parts of your brain? Um, do you think you have a leg up when you're writing fiction because you have that strong nonfiction background? Like, how does that work when you're writing fiction with that kind of, pretty much a pro in terms of writing nonfiction? Uh, no, <laughs> well, uh, I would not say that at all. But I like to take a break from one genre with the other because they do use different parts of the writer's brain and also they perform differently for readers. Fiction is really freeing because anything can happen, you know, and you're exploring just sort of emotional or human truths. And then in nonfiction, we're often, we're, we're looking at more verifiable truths. And for me, nonfiction is creative nonfiction I'm talking about now rather than more literary journalism type stuff is really rewarding because we're looking for connections that exist in our own lives. And in fiction, we're looking more broadly, I think, at connections that are applied to other, you know, like humans. And of course, the specificity of looking for connections in your own life when you're writing nonfiction do often apply broadly. The, in fact, it's sort of a, a paradox that the more specific you can be with your nonfiction, the more broadly it connects to people. 
I think. But they do function differently. So that's a good question, yeah. So at the back, we were having a conversation about the rent, how rent, the renting situation in Toronto is pretty crazy. It's pretty nuts. Maybe it might be helpful to kind of talk about how you guys kind of make it as debut authors in terms of what does a good writing day look like? Do you have a job or do you juggling that? What does that look like? I think that would be helpful for everyone out, out there in terms of how you guys kind of have a published book and how do you kind of pay the, pay the bills? Oh, wow. Um, so I think I've been very fortunate in the sense that a, the majority of this book I wrote during my MFA. So I secured two years to just write. I mean, I was broke as hell <laughs> at the time in New York, but that's why I went. I went to write. And so that definitely gave me like the time and the space. Also, it's so funny just being an author because I also work for Diaspora Dialogues, but working for Diaspora Dialogues has also been very beneficial just because I have a very flexible and supportive, like, you know, boss. Hi, Helen. <laughs> um, and, and so that allows me, that allows me to write. I also live at home, so I don't have to pay rent. I don't know how people who like are professors and like have children and, and like have like, you know, are like full out adulting do do this because I'm not doing that right now. But in terms of a good writing day, I write at night, actually, which is not really conducive to traditional work hours. So I, if I'm like buzzing at midnight and I can like, and if I'm like watching Lord of the Rings or something and I'm just like, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome. And I write till about five o'clock in the morning. That's like a really great day for me. And luckily I can do that now, but yeah, so that's just, I don't really think I answered your question because I'm still not sure, but that's, that's basically what still my life out, has been. Yeah. For a really long time, I worked half-time for a tech company. And I think, yeah, flexible work is really key. And then about a year and a half ago, I stopped doing that. And ever since then, I've had probably about six jobs at all times, just like crazy freelance stuff, teaching. But also, you know, I was saying like, describing video for visually impaired. And I wrote a lot of copy for a CBD company recently, <laughs> which was <laughs> involved doing a lot of research. Yeah, I do, I do like a lot of uh, strange jobs cobbled together to, to pay my rent. And um, a lot of, I'd say a perfect writing day. It's, it's interesting because I think as writers, we, we always sort of have this like vision of being free to write all the time. But I, I think that that's actually sort of a curse. Like when I've had the opportunity to go to writing residencies, it's always a lot of pressure. It's actually a lot of pressure. I think a, a, like a really good writing day is like maybe for me, it's anyways, like four hours, three hours, you know, like you just have a little block of time and you're in the zone. It's actually really funny that you say that because when I have gone to writing residencies, I haven't written a thing while I was at the writing residency. But when I would get back, I think just having that time like jump started in my something in my brain. So I'll write when I get back. But like while I'm there, it's just I'm gonna write. Oh look, Netflix. I think just being in that I think now I've just come to realize that just being in that zone and being in that having that time allows me to think. So I think in my, like I write in my head before I write on the page. So I probably just write in my head while I'm at yeah. residencies. So both novels are, are pretty different, but they're pretty much the same in some ways in terms of that kind of coming, coming of age kind of, kind of tale in many respects. I know a lot of authors hate this question, but what do you hope audiences and readers kind of take away from your, from your respective books? 
Well, for like certain readers, readers who like, you know, black girls, black women, black people, I really hope that they read my work and they're just like, they feel that sense of um, belonging, feel that sense of representation. Like that was really big thing. I had like a really, there was like this really lovely review in the LRC by like Zuri, who was talking about how it was like a fist bump to people. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. And when people hear the title and they're just like, oh, and they just laugh because they understand what frying plantain means. Like I really, I really enjoy that. And for other readers, I mean, I also really want them to connect to the story. I also really want them to connect to Kara. One of the greatest things has been that um, Snow Day, which is about her being bullied by her friends, resonated with so many women. They like, I just had people come up to me being like, when I was in grade seven, there was this girl named Julie. And I'm like, oh, wow. So like, I'm really, I've been like really thankful for the fact that people can just, they can find themselves in, in the story as well. So I really... Really, I guess just like a sense of belonging in all sense would be, would be like, it's always great to, that's what I would want them to take away from it. Becky? I wanted to write a book about like a female character that was messed up a bit and messy. And when I was growing up, I really loved European films where there was like a sort of badass female character. Like Nikki is actually named after La Femme Nikita in my head. You know what I mean? But like where there's like a character that's, being dangerous and doing stupid things, but, you know, has a heart and is trying to figure stuff out, right? So I, I sort of, yeah, I hope it connects to, I did have one person reach out also, yeah, that had been sort of street involved and stuff. And I just hope it's, it's meant to be a somewhat hopeful book, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, in the midst of all the mess, there's like a lot of kindness that happens in the book, I think. Right, so right. it's meant to be hopeful, I think, for people. <clears throat> So I guess ultimately, how do you define success as a Canadian author? Is it like we talked about a book awards? Is that validation? Do you look at um, touring, the fact that you've actually written? Like, how do you define success on a personal and professional level? You know, touring, doing panels like these, the awards, they're, they're great. I'm not going to say that they're not. I do really enjoy when people come up to me and like personally connect to the book, like I was kind of saying beforehand. I recently did a talk at York and yeah, just like a few people in the audience were just like, yeah, like, you know, I, I grew up around Eglinton, Weston Marley. So I can, I totally recognize these streets and I totally did that. And it was really great. Like just reading a book about Toronto and knowing the street names and knowing the neighborhoods and feeling represented in that sense. And that's like great because at least for me, when I was writing, I was just writing and I didn't know if anybody would relate to it. I didn't know if anybody would like it. I didn't know if it was going to get published. And so for it to be published and then for people to actually just find something in my book that they, that they really relate to or that, that resonates with them or that they want to know more about is definitely a measure of success for me. Yeah, I agree uh, for sure. I'm talking, talking to readers and hearing from readers and even having friends and family finally get a chance to read this book because this book took me 10 years to write for a number of reasons. So for me, the success of A, finishing something <laughs> was, was one metric that was important to me. And, and then, yeah, actually, you know, getting this, getting this published, finally, it's been a profoundly joyful experience, I would say. I, of course, it's fraught like, with other things, like you think it's crap and all that, but but generally, it's been like to finish something and have it actually out in the world is lovely. Yeah. Right, right. So you mentioned that before we open up to questions soon. Um, 
a lot of people claim to want to be writers, claim to want to have written, but you guys have actually done it. You have something tangible here. This is my book. What would you say kind of separates you from all the, don't want to say wannabes, but all, all those people who aspire to be writers? What kept you going knowing the bills, rent was due, knowing you're looking for a job or, you know what I mean? Like what gave you the motivation and the fortitude and the willpower to keep going and struggling? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to put out in the world. So I've been writing for a very long time. My grandmother has said that I've been writing since I was four. And for a while, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I realized I had to deal with math. Then I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Then I was like, that has to do with the, <laughs> I have to do the LSATs. And all throughout that, I've been writing. And so there's just never been a moment in my life where I have not written. And then I decided to like put myself in considerable debt by going to Columbia and doing my MFA. And I think the minute that I did that, I was just like, well, I've invested myself now. I am not going to spend all this money and put myself in all this debt and not write. But that isn't to say that there hasn't been, there haven't been times where I've tried not to write. And I, I have, I've, I've just been like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm a masochist. Why would I ever like choose this? But I, I've, every time I've tried to stop writing, I've been miserable and I've never been able to just do it for more than a week. I think for me, as corny as it sounds, it's just something I have to do. I can't think of anything else that I would be doing. It's kind of just it for me. Yeah, uh, similar is you, you, I mean, they say this, I started my creative career as an actress and we would always have people coming in and saying like, if you can do anything else, do it. Like, do not be an actor, you know? <laughs> and it's basically the same for writing, you know? It's, <laughs> and obviously I'm not an actor anymore. I could do something else, thank goodness. But I'm so impressed you want to be a marine biologist. <laughs> when, I, yeah, I think at the time I thought that I only had to deal with like dolphins. Like I didn't think I had to deal with anything else. It was only going to be dolphins. And that was also something where I was like, well, if I have to research other things, then why? Yeah, I think I wanted to be a mafia mistress when I was a kid. <laughs> I have that in one of my diaries. Yeah, much lower bar. Um, I guess maybe talk about what's next. Like now... You've written this book. You, you've lived with these characters for so long. Is there a decompression process in terms of stepping away from these characters? And it's, they've been living in your head for so long and move on to the next. Do you even think along those lines? Like what happens when you actually complete a book and, hey, this is done. What do I do next with my life? So when I finished the book, so originally when I finished the book, it was like 90 pages. Um, and I thought I was done. And then... I got an agent and she was like, no, no one's going to read a book that's 90 pages. Uh, you have to continue to write. And then I did. After that, because I'd been living with the characters for so long, I was done. Like, I think it was, I was surprised by how easy it was for me to be like, yeah, okay, I'm stepping away from this now. Because sometimes I get questions like, oh, are you ever going to do something about like Verna and like Eloise's story? Like, are you ever going to like write that? And maybe sometime in the future, but Right now, I'm just so done that they, they're always there and they've always lived with me. But because they're in this like physical book, it was easy for me to walk away from them because I was living with them for about 10 years. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a sad thing when I finally sent in the final draft because, yeah, you have been living with them for so long. It's like I never get to make them do anything anymore. Like They can't change anything. They can't play with these guys anymore, really. 
it's exciting also to work on something new. Like it's so exciting. It's like such a relief uh, to, to finally move on. And going back to your last question, I remembered what else I was going to say, which is just that luck also plays like a big part. And you asked like what sort of separates us or whatever. And I think we're also like very, we're lucky, you know, it's like a hard business if there's people out there that are, you know, trying to get their first book. It's, um, yeah, it's like the stick-to-itiveness is part of it and the needing to do it is part of it. But also there's like a, a key element of luck and that part is, is hard to deal with. But if you, you know what they say, there's some saying about like being in the right place for luck to find you or whatever. Right. And that being in the right place is just keeping at it, you know. Awesome. So I think we'll open up the floor if anyone has any questions. And please remember, have a question, not a comment. So anyone out there? That's a great question. It's also, I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible uh, because it was, not, it was not a straight road. So basically what happened was I tried to get agents because I was, I was in the States for a bit. So I was trying to get agents in the States, but they said no. A lot, there was like a lot of no's. There were sometimes agents who would like bounce me around to other agents to see if they could like place me. But being Canadian, they just weren't interested in the story. And then I tried to get an agent in the UK, but then they wanted to take out like all the Jamaican aspects of it. And I was just like, no, I won't do that. And then I got a little bit discouraged and I came back to Canada. And then I ended up submitting to publishers on my own since you can do that here. And I chose very small publishers. Then I kind of forgot about it because it takes them, it can take them like six to eight months to get back to you. And when I was at a residency, a few of them got back to me saying that they wanted to publish me. And I was very, um, she was talking about, Becky was talking about luck. I was very lucky because I was in a place where there were established writers around that I could ask for advice. And so they all told me to get an agent. And the thing about doing a short story collection is that a lot of agents will tell you that they're not going to represent you because it doesn't make money. That had also been like a barrier for me. I, I was a short story collection. So in terms of getting the agent I have now, I started off with, I have three offers on the table and I need help. <laughs> So I needed offers before I could get something, something else. And so that was kind of like my roundabout way. But in terms of like advice for, for you know, like young black women and, and, and writing and getting published and getting an agent is just research, like research all of the different agencies and who the agents are and what they, um, what they represent. And if you can do things, there are a lot of like writing groups in the city, like there's Writing While Black. We also have like Diaspora Dialogues has a mentorship program and stuff like that, just trying to get the different kind of connections around. And like even sometimes you can email authors and ask them like for, for any advice and stuff like that as well. So I think it's just really a matter of persistence, which sounds like a non-answer, but that's kind of what you have to do. It's a good question. I love television. I love movies. So I wanted my work to be cinematic. I Every time I write, I know that I'm getting in a groove when I can see it in my head and it plays like a movie. I'm also very possessive of my work. I do know that I would, I would love for this to be adapted if it could be, but I also know that I would want to be very much attached to it. Like I would have to negotiate something where I'd be like, I need equal say or something like that just because I think there have been so many, at least in my opinion, so many books or plays even where it's been adapted. And I look at it and I'm like, did the author have anything to do with this? Because it seems like completely different. 
But I also do respect cinema as its own form and certain things are going to be adapted and certain things are going to be cut out. And so I think just, I think it's all about relationships and finding like that kind of right balance between, between the two. My book used to have a completely different ending and it was like a Hollywood ending. <laughs> and then I realized that I had specifically written that ending for like imagining it as a film. And I wanted something quieter for the book. I thought it worked better. But if it ever is made into a movie, I have this other ending. <laughs> and there's, yeah, it's, it's really intense. So just saying. Okay. I didn't want to do a novel because I think that there's like linkages with novels and stuff like that. Whereas even though it is chronological, I jump in time quite a bit and I didn't want to explain that. Like I didn't want to explain what was happening while this was going on. I didn't want to show when like Eloise and Kara were moving to different places. And so I just wanted it to be like, this is one story, this is capturing one moment and then we're going to move on to something else. And so, I mean, there were a lot of people who were like, you know, just make it a novel and it can, you might have better luck. And I was just like, I don't want to. But that's also because when I actually first started writing this, I thought it was going to be a novel. And like the chapters were 25 pages and they ended and there were just people like, this isn't, this isn't a novel though. You're writing stories. And so that kind of just became how I wrote it. And I couldn't see myself doing it in any other way. Any other questions? For me, my MFA was really great with that because of workshop. And so I think I learned in workshop how to do that because when I read comments and when I hear comments, if I'm being very defensive, I think I can tell or I've learned to like understand my defensiveness. Am I being defensive because that person is right and I don't want them to be right? And that means more work for me. Or am I being defensive because that person isn't actually being critical? They're criticizing, but they're not being critical. And I think you can tell the difference. I think you can tell when someone's feedback comes from a genuine place and when they have an actual point and when you can be like, you know what? And, and I think just sitting with their commentary for a while, I think sometimes like your natural reaction is just like, well, that person is wrong. And then you have to kind of just step back, maybe take a couple of days calm down, not be so egotistical or like, and then go back to the commentary and then go like, you know what? They have a point. And then maybe look at your work again and be like, but does that point work for me? And that's another thing too. It was something that I had to learn because with this book, at least I was very perfectionist. If I didn't like a sentence, then I wasn't going to continue on with the paragraph. And so I had to remember that you can still change your stuff and change it back. Like it's not written in stone yet. So you can try somebody's edits. And if it doesn't work for the story, you can take those edits out. And so just realizing that things aren't set in stone is a great help to you as a writer, I think, anyway. I pretty much agree with, with all of that. It's, uh, you have to advocate for your work. You have to not show it to, to people that you don't respect or, or want their opinion. Finding like community or, or people in your community of writers that you really, they don't have to be working on the same type of stuff as you, but they have to be able to communicate their thoughts to you in a way that makes sense. And like when you find those people, they're like gold and you just hold on to them and you buy them dinner all the time and you just, you know, <laughs> like try and keep them around so that they can feed back to you on your stuff. Right. Any more questions? We have about five minutes. Um, the gentleman with the hat there. 
it's just sen it, mostly sensory details. You know, uh, when I was living in Barcelona, I spent a lot of time outdoors, and uh, I like to get when I'm getting to know a city. I like to just walk and walk and walk and walk, and it kind of seeps into you, and then just sort of letting, making sure that you've got all the senses covered. You know, the smells of things and the textures of things and the sounds. Soundscape is important. Was for me, yeah. So I love this question because I am terrible at setting. I love dialogue. And so my stories always start with dialogue. And when, you, when people read my first drafts of stuff, it's like five pages of dialogue and no setting. So people will just be like, are they sitting? Are they standing? Are they walking? Like what's going on? And so I paid a lot of attention, a lot of attention to writing setting just because that was one of my weakest points. In terms of Eglinton West, when I also first started writing this, besides the story Frying Planton, which was like the only time for a while that I mentioned Eglinton West at all, because I was writing outside of Canada, I made this like an amorphous kind of city where it could be anywhere and it wasn't working because it was flat. And then every time I came back to Toronto, things were changing. Eglinton West was being gentrified. Uh, the world's biggest bookstore was gone. Anna Seds was gone. The Toronto that I was growing up with was disappearing. And so I just felt like I really wanted to sort of, you know, write about and memorialize and, you know, everything of the Toronto that I was growing up with. So then I was very careful about what details I was going to put in, what street names I was going to put in, if I was going to talk about hairdressers, if I was going to talk about nail salons, if I was going to talk about Randy's patties, because I wanted Eglinton West to come alive the way that I saw it when I was a child. So that's how that happened. I wanted to get into like the coming of age. Both of you are coming of age, but it's like a lot of debut authors they come out with a coming age novel, like Kara is you and Nikki is you. Like, did you encounter that? Was this your yes. first? <laughs> <laughs> did you kind of come to grips with that or you kind of avoided that really quickly? Maybe talk about that before we wrap. I got that as I was writing it. I got that as it was coming out. And I was like really irritated with it for a really long time. And I'm not saying that I'm not irritated with it now, but just because it's been happening so often, I just have this sort of jaded attitude towards it where I'm just like, no, it's not me. Yes, I also lived in these neighborhoods. No, that still doesn't mean that it's me. Um, <laughs> it's fiction. If I wanted to write a memoir, it would be a memoir. So I think for me right now, it's just kind of part of the territory. I don't think it should be, but that's just, that's how I feel today. I might feel differently tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know if I answered the question, no, but that's, 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 that's what <laughs> Really quickly, Becky. Well, on the top, so my book is in first person, and yes, a lot of people think that it's about me, which is really disconcerting because it's a you know very young criminal person, <laughs> the character. And my mom, when she read the book, she called me and she said, "My favorite part was when you met Manu." That's what she said. That was her first comment, you know. And other people, people that aren't my mom, also say things like that all the time. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a challenge. So my next book is going to be in third person, and that's part of the reason. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So I guess we'll wrap it there. Thank you, Zalika Reed Benta, the author of Frying Plantain, and Becky Blake, the author of Proof I Was Here. Thanks to you. Thanks to the festival, Diaspora Dialogues, uh, Word on the Street, and all the related sponsors. And thanks to the audience for coming. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. 
If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.